Today in Luke 11, we've got a passage that, uh, that deals with prayer. And I wanted to read to you, um, I was reading in the book this week, it's a book I'm reading called Letters from a Skeptic. It's uh, about a young man named Greg Boyd, who uh, was a Christian, is a Christian, he's still alive, and, and his father was a skeptic. And uh, they would write letters back and forth. And his dad would write him about all of his skepticism, and his son would answer his questions. And they put together a book. Um, his dad, uh, it's a great story, came to know Christ at the age of 74 and died shortly thereafter. Uh, so it's a great story. But here's what the dad's question was, uh, his issue, one of his issues was, uh, to his son. And again, this book is about one letter, the dad writing and the son answering. And the dad writes this, the skeptic says this. He said, I don't see that prayer ever works. Not only this, but I don't see how prayer could ever work. If God is all good and all powerful and concerned about, about us, doesn't he already want the best for us? So wouldn't he already be doing as much as he can ever do for us? So what are you asking for in prayer? For him to care more? He supposedly already cares as much as he could. Are you asking him to do more? He's supposedly already doing everything he can. Are you informing God of some problem he'll do something about? He supposedly already knows everything. So you can't inform him about anything. You can't coax him into doing anything. And you can't empower him to do anything. So what, and he uses a, a, a very colorful word, which I will gloss over. So why are you doing, or what are you doing when you pray? The whole thing seems like a total waste of time to me. Now, if you are a skeptic, or if you are, were once a skeptic, you understand that. But I'll go so far as to say, if you're a Christian, you understand everything he's saying. It's an excellent, very uh, uh, straightforward issue. Why would we ask God, who knows everything, does God need us to tell him that someone we know is sick? Lord, you heard about these people. Oh, no, I didn't. I'm a little slow. I hadn't gotten on the divine social media yet. Do we need to tell God? Do we need to tell God? Lord, Lord, will you be with me? Oh, okay, thanks for the request. Now I'll be with you. Lord, we need these, this person healed. Oh, okay, thanks for asking. Now I'll do it. God knows everything. Why does he need us to tell him anything? Why would we want our imperfect wills foisted over him? Lord, here's what you did. Now you need to undo it. You caused this, or at least you allowed this terrible thing to happen. Now I'm putting my 25 cents into the, into the machine. I'm going to pull the, y'all remember those, right? 25 cents and you pull. You can't get anything for 25 cents now, but now it's $2. I put my $2 in and get a water or something. I'm going to put my money in and I'm going to pull the lever and you're going to give me what I want. Yes? Rarely. Maybe never. And yet people have this view of prayer. I had a friend of mine that I went to junior high and high school with, and he died a few years ago, had cancer, and he, he wrote a book. He told a story about his conversion to Christ, um, but one of the issues that he had growing up was that his mother had cancer, and he was raised in a church that if you asked God for it, you got it. And if you had enough faith, you got it. There was no question about it. And he thought he had the faith. And they prayed for the mom to, to live, and the cancer just continued to eat away at her. And they prayed and they believed. And he said, and my dad constantly believed it. She's going to be healed. We pray for things. We ask God for things. We don't get everything. People die, don't they? We can pray as sincerely as we want. In fact, we could get on a prayer chain and get 1,000 people, 10,000 people to pray for us. As if somehow or another 10,000 people praying for something will twist God's arm enough for him to finally say, Uncle, I'll let your mom live. Notice at the top of the bulletin what I put, the passage from James 5.16. The prayer of multiple righteous people. No, the effective prayer of a righteous man or by extension woman can accomplish much. A person, an effective prayer in the Bible, we see people asking for things and being granted that. I've just made a list here. I'll just go over it quickly. Jesus continually stole away to pray. 
The Son of God, God in flesh, stole away to pray. And as a result of him praying, God's will happened. As a man, he prayed, Lord, praying to the Father, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. That night before he died, knowing he's going to take on the full wrath of God the next day. If it's possible, God, the Father, let this cup pass from me. Is there another way? Is there a plan B? The answer, of course, was no. This is the only way, son. When he prayed, God's will happened. Abraham's servant prayed, and Rebekah appeared and married his son Isaac. Jacob prayed, and Esau, his twin brother's anger, abated. Moses prayed, and Amalek, the kingdom of Amalek, was struck. And when Moses prayed, the people of Israel were forgiven. Hannah prayed, this young woman who was barren, and Samuel came through her womb. Isaiah and Hezekiah prayed, the prophet and the king, and 185,000 Assyrians that surrounded the city died. Elijah prayed, and there were three years of drought. He prayed again, and the rains came. You see, true prayer centers on the will of God, not our own pleasures. Lord, I don't want my mom to die keep her alive. Don't you think she's going to die eventually anyway? If prayer worked every time for everything we want, no one would ever die. No one would ever get sick. We have a twisted, horrible view of prayer, even as Christians, that God is somehow a genie in the sky. And something happens, ask him and he'll make it go away. He made it appear. Why would he want it to go away? He's sovereign over all things. Why would he have given it if he wanted it to just go away? Now, that's possible. People have fallen away from the faith. My friend that I told you about earlier fell away from the faith horribly after his mother passed. There is no God. Prayer doesn't work. No more prayer for me. No more prayer for my family. We will not pray. We didn't get what we wanted. Hmm. What a horrible view of prayer. It's a very high view of mankind. And let me ask you this. When you have, how many of you have, it's usually, when, it's usually a form of parents and children, but it can be friends as well. How many of you have a, a relationship somewhere where the only time the person talks to you is when they're wanting something? Do you like those relationships? Oh, here comes somebody else. They're going to ask me for something else. Ah, something else. Asking, demanding complaining they didn't get it. Anyone like those relationships? Oh, somebody says, now we have caller ID, you know. Uh, it's, it's Junior. Wonder what he wants. You ever said that? Wonder what he wants. Oh, here comes so-and-so. They're, they're a salesman or a saleswoman of something. Uh, turn the other way. They always want something. That's a terrible relationship. And yet that is the relationship many who call themselves Christians have with God. All they ever do is plead with him for what he can give to them. And then have the gall to walk away and say, he's not there. He's not listening. There must not be a God. Luke 11, 1, it happened while Jesus was praying in a certain place. The location is not given. He's praying. Jesus is often seen praying in the Bible. He's praying at his baptism in chapter 3. He's praying right before he appoints the 12 who would become the apostles. He's praying. The Son of God prays. If we saw a Bible without Jesus praying, we would, we would understand that. Well, he's God. Who is he praying to? God the Son is praying to God the Father. And in fact, God the Son will teach us that that's who we address in prayer is God the Father. We might pray to Jesus, Lord Jesus, help this. I don't think that's wrong per se, but in the model prayer we have the Son of God telling us to address God the Father. You ever hear someone close their prayer in Jesus' name? That means I've prayed what I've prayed for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ or in, by the will of the Lord Jesus Christ. I've prayed to God the Father. I'm praying in the name of Jesus, believing that my prayer is approved by Jesus, 
and I'm asking for things that the Holy Spirit, i.e. the Bible, has given for me to pray. To God the Father, in the name of the Son, under the influence of the Spirit of God. You see the Trinity in prayer? It's powerful, is it not? I'll also say this, and, and this, I don't want this to be um, in any way offensive if you grew up in a liturgical church whereby the Lord's Prayer was part of your liturgy every week. This is not the Lord's Prayer. If the Lord's Prayer was to be labeled, it comes in John chapter 17, the high priestly prayer of the Lord our God. How many of you have sat in a church before, and it's time where you go, and you do it in King James English, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And then you add that little addendum on the end. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. That's part of the liturgy in churches. I submit to you, this is not a prayer. Never pray that because Jesus didn't give it to us as a prayer. Why do you say that, Lance? Well, first and foremost, it's given in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's gospel. And it's different in Luke's gospel. So if it's a prayer, why did Jesus shorten it in Luke 11? Secondly, look over with me at Matthew's version of it. Matthew chapter 6, it begins in verse 9. Again, Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is what's commonly called the Sermon on the Mount, spoken in various ways at various times in various places. Matthew gives us the fullest version of it. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus starts talking about prayer. He says in verse 5, Matthew 6, verse 5, he says this, when you pray, as if to say not if you ever decide to pray, but when or whenever you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites. Does anyone here want to be a hypocrite? Just want to make sure, check my audience out. No one wants to be a hypocrite? Okay, so this is for us. When you pray, you're not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray on the synagogues and on the street corners, so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close the door, pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Go into your closet. You don't need to go pray out and everyone to hear your King James Version only prayer time. Lord God, thine will and thine only and thou will and ye yo yow. Some people love to pray that way, but that's not the way they talk to you. They, they speak and pray in King James English. Somehow or another, they believe that's more pious. It's not. It's just annoying. So as Jesus is saying, when you pray, go into private. God can hear you. Note this, verse 7. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. For they suppose they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So if the Lord's Prayer is to be spoken as a prayer, or what's commonly called the Lord's Prayer, what do we do with verse 7 when he says, do not use meaningless repetition? Do we, we just keep praying that prayer over and over? Prayer and prayer, over and over, over and over and over. We're told not to use meaningless prayer. What we have, and Matthew's version picks it up there in verse 9, a model for prayer. Now, I'll go back and forth from Luke to Matthew. So let's go back to Luke since that's what we're studying. It's been a year now. I've been studying Luke for a year now. And we're in chapter 11. I believe we started last Easter. So while Jesus is praying, he notices, or his disciples notice, they want instruction on how they should pray. It says here, one of his disciples said to him in verse 1, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. That's John the Baptist. Perhaps the one asking is Andrew or John, who's the brother of James. One of them, maybe it was Andrew or John, is saying, uh, hey, we learned how to pray under John the Baptist. Jesus, teach us how to pray. One of the, the things about prayer is that prayer reflects the theo your own theology. It's what you think, what you think about God. 
when you go to pray, if you go to pray at all, you immediately, whether you're a Christian or not, if you pray, because many people who are not Christians pray, you are admitting, I'm too weak to do this on my own. You're seeking a higher power. There's a submission to a, to a higher power and a recognition of a higher power. Praying for something. If you're praying for somebody, praying for someone to come to know Christ, you're also admitting that they need God's help. As if to say their free will isn't enough. Which is interesting to me because lots of people who believe in this idea of free will when it comes to salvation are praying for people. That doesn't make any sense. If you're going to pray for someone and you don't believe that God should intervene or that someone should love on their own perfect free will, which is obviously a misnomer, what you're saying is, God, I need you to go overwhelm that person, put your love on them so that they too will believe. Well, that's spoken like a very good sovereign grace person, is it not? It's amazing if you ask someone who believes in strict free will, do you pray for people? Well, of course I pray for people. Why? So that God would open their eyes? I thought they had free will for that. We know they do not. Our eyes are closed. Our eyes are blinded. Our wills are dead in sin. We need God to make us alive, as Ephesians 2. While we're in our sins and trespasses, what does Paul say? God made us alive. Why do we love God? 1 John chapter, what? 4, 19? Because he first loved us. Not because I chose to, because I think he's a really cool God. We love him because he loves us first, or loved us first. So our theology will reflect our prayer. Our prayer, I should say, will reflect our theology. A theology is your view of God. John the Baptist had a view of God, and he taught his disciples. Jesus, his disciples are watching him pray, and they say, Jesus, teach us to pray. Show us a distinctive about what it means to be a follower, your follower, and to pray like you. So Jesus didn't say, maybe someday, maybe sometime, we'll get to that. No, right away. Jesus answers some prayer right away. Important prayer that is spot on to his will. Lord, give me a hunger and thirst for your word. Okay, those are immediate requests. God, grant me the wisdom I need to get through this. God doesn't say, eh, I'm going to let you hold on to that for a while. He complies. Verse 2, and he said to them, when you pray, when you pray, again, you've got this assuming you are praying. When you pray, whenever you pray, and at all times when you pray, when you are recognizing that you are inferior, that you are weak and can do nothing, whenever you recognize you need that, as a skeptic would call it, a crutch. That's what skeptics call, atheists call those of us who pray. Oh, God's a crutch. Yeah. He's a crutch. I can't stand on my own two feet. In fact, I don't even have my own two feet without God having given those to me in the first place. I must have that crutch. I'm all in for the crutch. God is my crutch. I, I praise God for God. Yes? Just want to make sure you're with me. When you recognize that crutch you need, when you pray, say this. And I want you to note that every, except one, the lead us into temptation is not, but every phrase here that Jesus is, when he says, here's how you pray, he lists it in the Greek text as a present, I'm sorry, an aorist imperative. Now, you may not know what an aorist tense is in Greek, but a Greek aorist tense speaks of a past tense action, but of urgency. When it's an aorist tense is mixed with an imperative, which is a command, it speaks of urgency, urgency. But isn't it interesting that Jesus teaches us to pray to God the Father in a command, Lord, here's what I need. And I politely command you to give these things. When we pray according to this model, you can be so bold as to command God to do it. When you pray, say this, Father. There it is, Father. In Greek, it's pater, P-A-T-E-R. Jesus, no doubt, spoke Aramaic to his disciples, and he would have used the word Abba, which is a very deeply affectionate term for daddy. Abba, that's who we address. God, unknown God, far away God, no. Hey, Dad, I love it when my son calls me Dad. Dad, I think it's a sacred name. I loved calling my dad Dad before he passed away. Dad, 
The last thing he said to me, I'm going to get through this without a cry or anything. The last thing he said to me, he knew he was about to go. And he tried to muster up the courage, the strength to, to tell me for the final time how much he loved me. And, he's, and he tried to do it, and he was just groaning. I said, Dad. That was the last time I said it with him a lot. Dad, I know. You've told me a thousand times over the course of my life. Don't waste your energy. I know, Dad. I know, Dad. Last time I said that word to him while he was alive. It's a great word, isn't it? Dad. That's who our father is. Abba, Dad, or Daddy, if you will. Father. That's who we address in prayer. Father. It's very important that we know that. He's not a mother. God is always listed as a male, always in the Bible. He is the creator of all things. Who else are you going to go to? Everything or everyone else you can concoct, concoct is inferior. Father. Here's the command. Hallowed be your name. Now, of course, Matthew says, inserts the, the phrase, our Father who is in heaven. Luke shortens it and just says, here's how you do it. And Jesus would, have been, uh, would not have said it here. He said it in the Sermon on the Mount. Here's more of a personal uh, explanation to his disciples. Guys, you want to know how to pray? First of all, address the Father and tell him, hallowed be your name. That word hallowed means holy. Lord, Father, your name is holy. In fact, it's a command. It's not, it's not the, the prayer saying, Lord, you're great and awesome. Literally, it says, Father, let your name be held high, holy. If you want to put it, say it the opposite way, you could say, Lord, stop letting your name be blasphemed. Stop. We live in a world where it happens every day, everywhere we go. Lord, Stop. Stop letting it happen. And that's a good prayer to pray, but let it begin with you. Lord, stop letting me fail to sanctify your name. Father, hallowed be what? Your name. The name of God, the personal name of God, which encompasses the entire Trinity, is Yahweh, expressed uh, in Hebrew is what's called the Tetragrammaton, four letters, Y-H-W-H, Yahweh. We believe it's pronounced Yahweh, sometimes rendered Jehovah, Yahweh. Yahweh's name is great. You know the commandment, do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, which is to say to take it in some loose way. If you're going to say God's name, talk to God, but he's not a punchline. He's certainly not to be added to a curse word when we get angry or smash a finger. God's name is holy. And by the way, as Christians, we have adopted his name. We have within our very designation Christian Christ, little Christ. Our very life goes around and is a testimony to the name of God. So if God's name must be Hallowed, and we must stop keeping it from being hallowed. What does that mean for you? How do you live your life? What do you say? I mean, you all know that if I go out and act a fool, it's a tarnish on your own name because you go to the church where I'm the pastor. You go to that church, that guy's a fool, someone might say. I heard him using foul language or driving and weaving in and out of traffic. What kind of a guy is that? You ever see somebody, you know, the, the name's on the side of the truck. You know, you go down Interstate 45 and you see the J.B. Hunt. You know, that's on most of the trucks that go back and forth. It always say, how's my driving? Well, my driving, the person who's driving the truck, is a reflection on the company. You ever own a company and someone, one of your employees uh, does something that makes your entire company somehow dirties the name? How are we acting that might dirty or belittle the name of God. Father, let your name, your holy name be hallowed. Stop allowing it to be slandered. When you have the highest view of God and his name, everything flows from it. If your life is a mess, 
If you're wondering why God doesn't answer your prayers, you probably don't know God. You might just call him God. That's like God calling us, hey, human. Hey, you that I made. His name. His name is Yahweh, but we know him even more personally through the man Jesus of Nazareth. We know him. He's our our Savior, our Lord, even our friend. Do we want to slander his name? The first part of prayer begins with an address to the Father. Let your name be hallowed and let it begin with my life. As I said earlier, Matthew inserts the phrase, our Father who art in heaven. I have a dad who lived on the earth for my first 50 years. And now it would be my dad who is in heaven, but I don't, I don't address him. Hey, dad, up in heaven? No, my real dad is God the Father. God the Father is distinct from my dad. Even though my dad lives there with him, having come to know Christ, he's distinct from all others in that he dwells. As 1 Timothy 6.16 says, he dwells in unapproachable light. Unapproachable light. He is so holy. The apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 says that I ascended into the third heaven, not the sky over the earth, not space outside of the earth. I ascended into the third heaven where God himself dwells in unapproachable light, Paul says. And he said, I saw things I was forbidden to speak about. And so he didn't. That's where our God dwells. He's not our buddy. He's not our pal. He is a holy God, and our prayer to him is, Lord, let your name be held high. Let it begin with me. Cease to allow it to be ridiculed in society. And by the way, he will. Maybe not today, but he will. Isn't that great? One day he will stop allowing it. Father, Abba, hallowed be your name. Still, according to God, the prayer begins recognizing who God is, that his name is holy, and he says, your kingdom come. Matthew adds, your will be done. Luke does not. Again, if it's a prayer to be prayed over and over, why is it different? It's not a prayer. It's not to be repeated over and over. It's a model for how to pray. Fill in the blanks. It's a skeleton, if you will. Father, let your name be held high, your kingdom come, which is to say, not my kingdom. Your kingdom come. The kingdom of God was prophesied in the Old Testament. A kingdom, according to Isaiah chapter 2, 2, he spoke of, on that day the kingdom will come. Speaks of what it will be like in Isaiah 2, verse 2. In fact, let's look over at Isaiah 2, 2. I don't want to just say it, I got I to gotta read it. Isaiah 2, 2, I'm already there. So if you're not there, just listen. Now it will come about in the last days. The mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. And it goes on. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but here's what it is. It's prophesied. In other words, we're going to say that the kingdom of God is, was, is, and will come. Was, is, and will be. If you go over to the right from Isaiah, if you got over there, we don't want to waste your space. You're going to go over to Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and you'll pass over into uh, Lamentations briefly, and then you'll get to Daniel. Go to Daniel chapter 7, one of my favorite passages. I read it often when I preach. I recognize that, but it's, it's the future. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, verses 13 and 14. Daniel speaking, or I should say Isaiah spoke around 700 B.C. Daniel is writing this around 550 B.C. Daniel 7.13. Daniel says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. 550 B.C. Jesus comes later and says, I am that son of man. Daniel sees him before. One like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the ancient of days. Son of man is God the Son. Ancient of days is God the Father. The Son of God approaching God the Father and was presented before him. And to him, that is the Son of Man, was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, 
that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. The kingdom of God was prophesied. When we get to the Gospels, Jesus of Nazareth comes on the scene, and he says things like in in, uh, Luke chapter 9 and in Matthew 10, he sends the 12 out, and he says, here's your message. Go out and tell them this phrase, the kingdom of God is upon you. The kingdom of God is at hand. Tell them the kingdom of God is at hand, because the king, the son of man prophesied in Daniel and Isaiah, that king, son of man, is here, came in the first century. So the kingdom of God was prophesied. It is, it was, it is. And Jesus says in Luke 17, the kingdom of heaven is in your midst. The kingdom of God is here. If the king came to the earth, then the kingdom of God is here. And as the kingdom of God has grown, it has grown since the days of Christ. People are added to the belief, to the faith. Someone comes to know Jesus, the kingdom of God grows. Jesus gave us the Spirit of God within us. When we believe in His name, the kingdom of God is within us. So it was prophesied. It is now in a form, and it will be in its final form in the future. That's the prayer. You want to see what it looks like in the future? Turn over with me to Revelation. Do I need to tell you how to get to Revelation? I don't know how to find revelations, but I know where the book of Revelation is. Look over at Revelation chapter 11. This is all in the context of thy kingdom come. It's a command, Lord, send your kingdom. A command. Lord, I got a request for you. Send your kingdom. It's a command. Yes, I'm commanding you. This is what happens when, in Revelation chapter 11, when the the seventh trumpet is blown. Verse 15, and the seventh angel sounded, I'm in Revelation 11, 15. The seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he will reign forever and ever. That's what Daniel said he would do. But Jesus said the kingdom was with him when he came here the first time. And in the future, he will reign forever and ever. Turn over, stay in Revelation. Just move over to chapter 19. Let's get the fuller vision of it, version of it. Revelation 19. Beginning in verse 11. The apostle John is giving us firsthand account. He said, and I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. And he who sat on it, who rides a white horse? Not not talking about the Lone Ranger or anything. I'm talking about the the God of all creation. On the white horse is is conqueror. The white horse, and he who sat on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. He has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. His name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. By the way, that's us. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. So picture Jesus returning with the armies of heaven, those raptured, that raptured church, all of those who have died prior, who are in faith, love the Lord God, coming back. And while we come back with the Lord God, this second coming as the kingdom descends, we watch Jesus in verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads on the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh was a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. John says, I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in midheaven, come, assemble for the great supper of God. What's their supper? Those who refuse to receive Christ before his second coming. It's people. These birds eat. Birds of carrion, verse 18, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders, the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, small and great. And then we see the fate of the beast and the, and the kings of the earth. Verse 19, I saw the beast and of the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. 
And Jesus seized him and said, done, you're done. That's what happens at the second coming when the kingdom of God, which is now in a form, comes in the future. How does that relate to prayer? Pray for it. Demand it. God, I know I've got a good life. Thank you. I'm not complaining here. I've got some wonderful things. My bills are paid. I got a few extra bucks. I can afford to put gas in my car and another meal and maybe a dessert and add a Coke with dinner. Maybe you can afford a lot more than that. I've got it good. But Lord, I'll never have it as good as when your kingdom comes. Send it. Thy kingdom come. Which is essentially saying thy will be done. He doesn't need to say thy will be done because that is his will. Here's how you get everything you want in prayer. Are you listening? Here's how you get everything you want in prayer. Pray for God's will. If it's God's will, pray for it. Lord, I'm in agreement with your will. Do it. Do it. And don't you like people to agree with you? I love people that agree with me. You agree with me, you're my friend. You're the same way. I mean, it's a sin, but yeah. Do I like yes men and yes, yes men and yes people? Yeah, sure. Everybody that agrees with me. Yep. Especially the people that say amen when I'm preaching. Hey, I like those people. There you go. Giddy up. There's a friend. I don't know who it was, but that's a friend. You know how it feels when people agree with you. Or you present this idea and they go, that's a great idea. Spouses never say that, so don't ever expect it. But no, that's, that's a joke course my wife is constantly saying great idea Lance you're so smart (laughs) I lie like a cheap carpet that's how I lie but when you're agreeing with someone you're affirming them God has told us his will and now we in conformity with his will Lord my mom is dying of cancer You know my heart, Lord. I want her to live. I would love for her to live. I would love for her to get up out of bed. And the picture of death she is right now, picture it with my own dad. The picture of death that my dad had all over him before he passed. The fact that he could not walk or even go to the bathroom on his own. Lord, I would love for my dad to live another day. I would love for your miracle to just transform my dad And then he and I get up and go to the golf course tomorrow in our golf cart. And people say, Dave, what happened to you? The Lord healed me. That would be awesome, God. And we could give glory to you. And dad and I could play another game of golf. That's what I want. In the name of Jesus, will you give me that? Well, the answer was no. And I'm fine with that. I'm okay with that. I miss my dad. Many of you have lost people you love. God, nevertheless, not my will, but yours. And God said, thanks, Lance. I'm choosing my option. Because, Lance, your dad's going to die one day anyway. I'm going to bring him to be with me. That's the good news. Not just because he's my dad, but because my dad taught me about the Lord Jesus Christ. My dad taught me about what salvation was. I know that if he's teaching me, he knew it. My dad taught others. He was a Sunday school teacher. That doesn't mean he's a Christian. But my dad lived out his faith, and when he didn't, well, the things that he did wrong, he used to carry this rubber band around his wrist. It's an ugly old rubber band. Well, why, why the rubber band, Dave? It's what his friends would ask. Because I pop myself, he said, every time I say a bad word. And he plays golf, so if you play golf, it's just indigenous to playing golf or bad words. Pop, it, pop himself. That's, that's not right. I want to feel the pain. That, that was a testimony to me as a kid. Every day I would come down for breakfast. Dad's up early, he's reading his Bible reading his Bible. That meant something. I didn't know at the time. I would crunch my lucky charms and it would annoy him to no end. Crunching and he said, you can't eat without sounding like a pig. Trying to read my Bible here. I I diver. This is how we view God. You are my father, my Abba. Let your name be held high, Lord. Stop letting it be tarnished. Let your kingdom come. Send it. And let your will be done, not my will. Again, imperatives. How many of you are willing to pray for God's will over yours? Because my will was that my dad get up, we play golf, and we give glory to God. How did you get healed? You were about to die. I was just visiting with you yesterday, Dave. How did you get up? You couldn't walk last week. You had a stroke. God healed me. Wouldn't that be a great testimony? Some have had that. My dad didn't. 
That was the perfect will of God. Lord, your will be done. Pray as Jesus prayed in the garden. Lord, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. And what did he follow it up with? Nevertheless, not my will but yours. So here's what you do. Here's how you pray. Lord, here's what I want. You could tell God anything. You know that? You might as well say it. He knows what you're thinking. Here's what I want, Lord. You know what's on my heart. I want this, this, and this. But nevertheless, not my will, yours. Can you do that? That's how you pray. So that when God doesn't, you give him the glory. That his will, he's the higher being. He knows all. We don't. Obviously, what happened was what God wanted. Your kingdom come. Then after we've praised God and we've told God according to his name, we get to pray for ourselves. Petitioning. Give us each day our daily bread. Notice what it doesn't say. By the way, this also is an imperative. You can tell God and command God, give us today what we need. But what it doesn't say is, Lord, help us to store up enough to retire by age 55. Do you want to retire at 55? Then ask God for it. There's nothing wrong with it per se, but God may say no, no. The model for prayer is not praying about accumulating everything you must have. A new car, a new house, bigger house, bigger cars. It's about saying, Lord, just give us each day what we need. The man in Proverbs 30, it's not Solomon. He prays that God would give him Um, Not too much. Don't give me too much, Lord. If you give me too much, I'll forget about you. If you give me too little, I might blaspheme your name and steal to get what I need. Just give me what I need. It's hard to pray that, isn't it? I mean, we don't need to pray that prayer at all. Most of us in here, in fact, all of us probably, don't need to pray that prayer at all for at least another month. Because God's already stocked our pantries with enough food for at least a month. We don't even need to pray for daily bread, do we? It's already there. We never pray for daily bread. Unless you're a college student, maybe, trying to make it on your own. Or just give us some ramen noodles, just something. Empty carbs would be fine. I I prayed that, believe me. The food was so bad at one of the schools I went to, it was just some bean dip, Lord, it would be great. Don't even need the chips. (laughs) Sticking the fingers in, you know, and bringing it to the mouth. The prayer, the model for prayer is not to pray for a great future. It's to pray, Lord, give me what I need for the day. If you prayed at the beginning of your day, you're praying for that food for the day. If you prayed at the end of your day, you're praying for that food for the next day. Lord, tomorrow's tomorrow. Give me enough for tomorrow. It's a simple prayer. And forgive us our sins. Another command. Now, you might have heard me say on time, on occasion... As Christians, I don't think we ever need to ask God to forgive us of our sins. And I stand by that. As Christians, I'm not saying you can't. As Christians, we are forgiven. We don't need to ask God to be forgiven. The blood of Christ continues to wash away our sins. Thank you. Thank you, friends, countrymen. The rest of you, I don't know if you understand. You see, when Jesus died on the cross... He made atonement for all those who would believe on him. And so those of us who believe on him or in him, the blood that he shed washes away not only all of our sins from the past, our original sin, the plague, the cancer within our soul, it's washed away, but it washes away all the effects of that cancer. What we've done in the past, what we do now, and what we will do in the future. We don't need to say, God, forgive us. But wait a minute, Lance, the model prayer says, and forgive us of our sins. It does, but note the caveat. For we ourselves also forgive one, everyone who is indebted to us. I think what the, the model prayer is saying, I believe it firmly. And it's not that it's wrong to ask for forgiveness of sins. It's definitely right to confess our sins. Lord, here's what I did. I know you know it, but here's what I did. It's therapeutic to go over. Here's what I did. Here's why I think I did it. Maybe it's to a person. Maybe it's in prayer. But the forgiving of our sins is essentially saying, Lord, because I've forgiven everyone who's indebted to me, I know you've forgiven me. Stay with me. 
I know we're a long ways into this and you might be tuning out. Please stay tuned. This is huge. It's not about, God, forgive me of my original sin. It's not about, God, forgive me for that, that sin which Adam and Eve gave me, that plague on my soul. This is about the forgiveness that we need to show to those who have offended us in order to receive the forgiveness God provides in order to restore our fellowship with God. You see, here's the, let me separate this. We are born in sin. That's our, that's our cancer. That's the plague of our souls. When we believe in Jesus, the penalty for that sin we were born in is wiped away. We were born in sin. Jesus wiped away the penalty for that sin when we believe in him. But we keep sinning. When we sin, we confess those sins. Lord, I did this, I did that, I said this, I said that. I know it and you know it, Lord. I just want to get it out in the open and let you know that I know so that we can restore our relationship. In order to help you understand that, think of it in terms of your friendships, your marriage. If you're like me, you've said some insensitive things to your spouse. Insensitive things hurt. And when you hurt someone that you love and that loves you, until you go to that person and say, my love, I said something that I shouldn't have said. It doesn't matter the reason. I said something harsh, something mean. I was in a bad mood. Whatever your lame excuse was, you were confessing. Here's what I did and here's what I said. I'm asking you to forgive me. I want you to know this is what I did or said. Is that relationship at that point better than if you hadn't done that? My spouse loves me unconditionally, I believe. And she's going to love me even if I've said something and I feel like you've, maybe you've said something and you go, I'm not going to apologize for that. She deserved it. It was true, was it not? You know, wag that head back and forth. You got to add that to it. Your relationship is cold. Maybe it's a friend. It's cold. You might owe money. They know you owe money. You know they, that you owe them money. Until you recognize it, bring it out in the open, that relationship remains cold. Get it out. Say, dear, I'm sorry. Friend, I'm sorry. I know I owe you $150. I know I owe you $50,000. I know it. It tears me up that, that I owe that to you and I can't pay you. It tears me up that I said this about you. I want you to know that I know and that you know and that please forgive me. When you've done that, that's when you say, Lord, forgive me of my sins. I know that you've forgiven me because I've forgiven the others. Restore my relationship with you, God, as I've restored my relationship with others. But if you are one of those pig-headed people, that someone has done you wrong, and you say, I will never forgive you, God help you. You are in worse shape than anyone on the planet, especially if you call yourself a Christian. Your sins from beginning to end have been wiped away, wiped clean, and you have the gall not to forgive someone who called you a name, who owes you however much money they owe you. Jesus wiped away our, our everything that we owe. That's what sin is. It's a debt. In fact, Matthew's gospel says, forgive us our debts. A debt is something owed. We owe. And Jesus paid the penalty. He paid the fine. Paid for. You don't owe anything now. That's why you don't have to say, God, forgive me. God's already said, I paid that alone. I've already paid all of that. But when you confess it to God, you restore your relationship with God. This comes from 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 to 10. We confess our sins. And we know that when we do, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our wrongdoings. He's not talking about original sin. He's talking about all the things we've done that have hindered our relationship with him. God, you know what I said, you know what I did. Friend, you know what I said, you know what I did. We're asking in the model prayer for forgiveness, for the restoration of a relationship, not only with God, but with each other. But don't dare, don't even think about going to God and affirming your forgiveness if you refuse to forgive another. And I don't care what they did to you. We'll get into it later in Luke's gospel, but when the disciples ask Jesus, how many times do I forgive? Matthew 18 says, uh, 70 times seven. Didn't mean in a literal number, just over and over and over. 
In Luke's gospel, when we get to it, it's, hey, if he sins against you once and he does it again, he comes back, asks for forgiveness, forgive him. He goes out and does it again, comes back, asks for forgiveness, forgive him. Goes out and does it again, asks for forgiveness, forgive him. Over and over and over and over. There's never a point where Jesus says, look, after three or four times, just cut him off and, and, uh, don't, and stop forgiving him. Never. If Jesus keeps forgiving us, by golly, we must keep forgiving. I tell in premarital counseling, those getting married, the, your marriage is going to make you holy. It's either going to make you holy or it's going to make you bitter. In marriage, we learn, to learn, we learn to forgive one another. Over time, we forgive. We learn what forgiveness is. We learn how to give it and receive it. Over and over, year by year. Some don't. They just, they're done. You hurt me once, I'm out of here. Shame on you. If you call yourself a Christian... That's how we become holy. Are we ever more like Christ than when we are forgiving? Forgiving. And it's not like you say, you know what? I'm going to forget about it, but I, we don't ever, I don't ever want to see you again. That's not how Jesus does it. Jesus forgives it and invites you back into his house for another meal. Let that simmer a bit. Forgiveness. You're going to ask for it. You better give it because that's the condition. Father, let your name be hallowed, held high. Send your kingdom. Give us what we need each day. Lord, we've forgiven those who have, who have trespassed against us. Restore our relationship with you based on all the sins that we've committed against you, even since our days as a Christian. And lead us not into temptation. That's the final one. It's not an imperative. This is the one line here that's not an aorist imperative. And lead us not into temptation. Which is a strange request. Because if we read in James chapter 1, James says that God never tempts anyone. I want you to know that when you read James chapter 1, beginning in verse 12, all the way down, it follows. He speaks of a test and a temptation. You would expect that those to be two different Greek words because the New Testament, as you know, is written in Greek. They're the same word. What we translate test and temptation, that's the same word in Greek. Yet we know that God tests people. God tested Job, tested Abraham. He tests you and me. Read Hebrews chapter 11. It's a whole list of Old Testament saints that were tested and were shown to be wonderfully faithful men and women. God tests. He has to. If you've been through a difficult time and a trial, God's testing you. We're warned about that. I don't say warned, but we're told about that in Scripture. You're going to face to face trials. Endure. Stand firm. At the end of it all, there's a crown of life, James 1.12 says. Waiting. So there are tests. So we don't pray God spares from the tests. And we know he doesn't tempt us because James 1.12 and following says that God would never tempt us. So what exactly does the prayer mean? Lead us not into temptation? How many of you are worried when you're being tempted? Every hand should go up, by the way. When we fall in temptation, usually we put ourselves in that situation. Lord, I know that if, if, I, if I go down this road, maybe, maybe drinking is your problem. And you don't want to touch alcohol. You don't want to go near it because if you do, you're drawn to it because all the guys are going out after the game or whatever it might be. But you know, hanging out at a bar and all the, the booze that's served, you're thinking, that, that's, I can't do that. So you're fearful that if you get in that situation, you're going to fall. Or other sins. Maybe you're given to materialism. And the worst place for you as a materialist is the mall. Or an Amazon app on your phone. Lord, I'm never satisfied with what I have. I always want more and I know that if I get in the situation, I'm going to fall. The prayer is not so much that God wouldn't lead into temptation. God would never lead us into temptation. It's, Lord, when I fall into temptation by my own will, by my own weakness, don't let Satan have me. Get me out. God, it's a fearful thing. God, when I do, when I fall off the wagon, when I do what my heart tells me to do and the Spirit of God tells me not to do, when I give into it, hold me. Protect me. 
Are you scared of yourselves? You should be. Every one of us should be afraid of ourselves. I'm scared to death of me. I know what I'm capable of. I always watch these shows on TV, you know, Dateline special. Always, all Dateline is is solve murders. And every time, every time they interview someone that's it's the mother of someone who's committed murder or the good friend of someone who's committed murder, they always say what? They are not capable of that. They would never have done that. <laughs> what? Everyone is capable of murder. Everyone is capable of adultery. Everyone is capable of lying, of living a double life. Everyone. Why, class? Because we are wretched, putrid sinners at heart. How do you not know that? A man told me recently, he said, you know, he said, I say around my house, he said, I'm a, I'm a wretched sinner. And he said, and my son says, but dad, I don't understand it. You don't, you don't seem like a sinner to me, which is a great observation. I, I, I walk around telling everybody I'm a sinner, but you would not see me sinning. I don't go around sinning, not with my life. No, it happens right here. It happens right here, does it not? If you can't recognize that this is a cesspool of death and adultery and filth right here, this is our problem. This is where sin comes from. This is why my body would do things that it wouldn't otherwise do. It's right here. This is wretchedly sinful. We are born with a mind that's depraved. It's selfish. It wants what it wants. It does not want God's will. But when we are rejuvenated, when we are redeemed, when God makes us alive, this changes. And we hear the Spirit of God over here and the flesh over here, and they fight. And it literally gives us a headache. I know what I need to do. I know what I want to do over here. And I know what my flesh says to do over here. Lord, when the flesh wins, hold me and protect me. Don't let me sin. Lead us not to temptation. Matthew adds, but deliver us from evil, which is literally from the evil one. Deliver us from the devil. 1 Peter 5, 8 says this. For your adversary, the devil, prowls around. Think about this. I know you're tuning out. Look, I can see your heads bobbing up and down. Look at me. Your adversary, the devil. Yours, every one of yours. Your adversary, the devil, Satan, prowls around like a roaring lion. What if a roaring lion literally is prowling around you? Are you bebopping around with no concern? Our adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. When you give in to this side, you have become a bleeding animal. And when a lion smells blood, oh, he's on you. But deliver us from the evil one. Folks, when you pray, you're not going to change God's mind. God is all-powerful. But when you spend time in prayer, when you sit in the presence of God, He changes you. Prayer is not about how we can change God. Prayer is how He, He can change us. The longer you sit waiting for Him to change you, well, I would just say the less you even pray. God, here I am. I'm a mess. All I want is what I want. Change me. Instead of listing your whole list, change this, heal this person, heal that person. Some of the prayer meetings people sit in. All right, what are our prayer requests? A bullet-pointed list of everyone that we know is sick, including your dogs and horses. That's a terrible relationship to have with God. Acknowledge who he is, his name Pray his will, not yours. Ask for your daily bread. God, I've forgiven, and therefore I know you've forgiven me and restored our relationship. Don't let this side, this flesh-eating fungus that dominates me, don't let it get me. But hold me and protect me. You know how to pray now. Now go and pray. Let me close this. Lord, convict us. 
that there is a way to talk to you. There's a way for the prayer closet and there's a way for public prayer. You are our Father. Our Father in the sense that we know Jesus Christ our Lord. Lord, let your name be held high. Stop letting our own lives tarnish it. Let your will be done. And Lord, send your kingdom. That's your will. You're going to do it. Do it now. And in the time it takes to send it, may we be found faithful. Give us what we need, all we need, just what we need. May we trim off the fat of all the things we pray for and just thank you for what our daily needs are. I pray, Lord, if there's anyone today we need to forgive, we go make that right. And then acknowledge your forgiveness of us. And that flesh that's still left within us that beckons us to sin, overpower with your spirit. Lead us not to temptation. Deliver us from the evil one, Lord. If he's prowling around to to have us, don't let him have us. Don't let us give in to our temptation where he would have an easy meal. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. May God bless you as you go. You've been listening to a sermon by Dr. Lance Waldy, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Cypress, Texas. 